Hi, Creepers. This is Unexplained Oregon, a podcast with two best friends talking about all things creepy, the unexplained, and the missing in the Pacific Northwest. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Unexplained Oregon. You can also email us at unexplainedoregon at gmail.com. We love our listeners' suggestions, and we love hearing from you. That reminds me, if you're a friend of the podcast and you want more people to find out about us, can you take a minute to go on Apple Podcast and give us a good rating? We appreciate that. Kim and I talk about real-life intense subjects on this podcast that could be disturbing to some listeners. We also use bad language. As always, be mindful and take care of yourselves. Kim and I want to add an additional trigger warning for this episode. We are discussing uh, situations of violence against women and also discussing violence against children. Welcome back to Unexplained Oregon. I'm sitting here with Kim. Hello. We're back for part two. Yeah, and actually, yeah, we left people with this horrific story, the Klein Falls axe attack. Mm -hmm. Really anxious to hear how Terry came back to Oregon Mm -hmm. to come to terms with what happened to her. You know, she got some answers. Yeah, so this part is the the after. So last time we talked about the before, uh, and and that's really how she divides up this part of her life. You know, everything that she was before, her naive, you know, 19-year-old teenage self, her and her roommate Shayna, and how they saw the world and how they were, you know, hopeful and and how they had been moving through the world at that point was pretty, like, unaware of the violence, mm-hmm. you know. And then now, in at this point, very aware. And for 15 years, she had kind of been putting off, off this recovery for herself, really. She had thought she could get by with not addressing it, you know. And, and, and the book describes her kind of walking through the world. I, I think I said this in part one as finishing her degree, traveling, living in other places, being very aware of the violence and like noticing how much violence is happening to women. She starts picking up and paying attention and keeping art, newspaper articles and noticing like, okay, this is happening in all parts of our country, but of course she's going to be hyper vigilant to it. Mm-hmm. She was eventually, and when in her mid twenties, she did go into therapy and was diagnosed with PTSD, which makes sense to me. Uh. And we talked about how she never was able to really connect, although she tried for those fifteen years to connect with the one person that she thought she needed to connect with in order to help with the healing, and that would be Shayna, her roommate. But Shayna had no memory of the event, hmm. and also very much chose to set a boundary still to this day. Uh, Terry believes she's never read the book. Oh, wow. So Shana had chose to not hear the story, to not hear about that night. And Terry <laughs> wanted this, the one person that could help her heal to hear about it. So, so she, I think did the next best thing when she was ready and the book, you know, her starting to write this book, I think was the reason why she, she needed to come to Oregon. She needed to come back here. Scary. How scary for her to, you know, come back to the place. How scary and how brave. Yeah. Yeah. So she finds herself coming back to Oregon And her first stop is uh, to get the police records of the attack. And she goes to Salem to pick up the records. And she kind of describes, you know, getting into Oregon, what even she sees at that point early on in her trip. And even in the front of the Capitol building, the statue that's there... And they're, you know, she starts to, to become really hyper vigilant and aware of the axe mm. or an axe, like the statue that was in front of the building. I think it's probably still there. It's like someone with an axe. Wow. I know. I should have looked up more information. She kind of goes into that statue 
quite a bit because it's pretty symbolic. So she gets the the police report. It's about 30 pages long. Um, she describes it in two different places in the book. The police report, she calls it a skinny and also scrappy, which I think mm. is kind of interesting. So can you imagine getting the report and, and seeing how small it actually was. And she learns that really the investigation kind of fizzled by the end of the summer of 1977. And this happened, just to remind our listeners, June, uh, June 22nd, 23rd, 1977. So you're saying by the end of summer, so you're a month and a half. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Yeah. It was a closed case, basically. Right. Wow she really starts to retrace the route and kind of where they traveled after that and comes mm. back to Klein Falls. But I want to read first just part of the police report so we kind of get an idea of what was in it. On the late evening of June 22nd, 1977, two female bicyclists camping at Klein Falls State Park near Redmond were assaulted. The victims had retired to bed in a small camp tent near the Deschutes River. A vehicle operated by an unknown male subject was driven over a curb across the lawn area and into the tent occupied by the two victims. The assailants sub subsequently attacked the victims with an axe-type weapon, causing severe head wounds, and fled the scene. Klein Falls Park is located five miles west of Redmond on Highway 126. The park is a state-controlled rest area on the east bank of the Deschutes River. It is used by local residents and the traveling public as a picnic facility, swimming, and fishing. There is an access road about a fourth of a mile in length leading from Highway 126 to the grounds. There is only one way there is a one-way circular driveway through the park with restrooms at the north end and a large parking area in the southern portion. The victims had situated a two-man tent near the riverbank. Tire impressions were noted leaving the paved roadway over a seven-inch curb and traveling in a near one-half circle type maneuver. The tracks led back to the roadway to the curb and pavement. Near the apex of the turning tire impressions was a large quantity of blood in the grassy portion of the park. Yikes. So she's gets this report. She's reading through it. Obviously, there's not very much information in it. She is able to put herself in the shoes of, like, the police and, and kind of get that vantage or viewpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, her next step is to go to uh, the actual location. So she goes back to Klein Falls. And that was a pretty powerful part of the book. I mean, I can only imagine what it'd be like to go back there after 15 years and how different it may look with the different vegetation and growth in right. 15 years. But also, you know, she kind of describes finding the spot or what she believes is the spot that her tent was at or, you know, where they were. And she literally lays down in the spot. Mm. And what's wonderful about the the description and and you know imagining what it must have been like for her is that I think that really was the moment where she started her healing process she describes that up until that point she had not been able to gain weight mm. so I find this like so interesting that her body had just been like reserving you know probably somewhat shut down even in order to protect her Hmm. Because she, up until then, she, you know, had been uh, feeling probably very unsafe. And maybe at this point, her body was like able to stop or stop trying to protect her anymore and allowed her to her systems to start like, yeah, actually behaving in a way that all of ours do, mm -hmm. you know, when you're not fearful, living in stress, living in fight or flight. Yeah. So she was able to start gaining weight again, mm. which I just, she describes there are several, several points in this book where she has moments like this, where an event will literally like impact her body wow. just simultaneously. She finds in the police report that the day of the attack, there were five people that had very similar descriptions of a man in the park. 
um, that they had seen. She finds that really interesting. And also there was definitely like a pickup truck that they all saw. So it was parked near the tent, some people said, with four-door Chevy with a canopy. And some people said red, some people said maroon. So there was definitely a truck there that day. And five separate people saw this truck. Right. And they described the man. There was a man there. And, and he's anywhere from 20 to 35. 5'9 to 5'10. Maybe close to 6 feet. And they even described his clothing like t-shirt, light colored, possibly a beard, possibly not. So what's kind of interesting is, you know, you've got five different people who are... You know, not the most reliable, probably. We're not always the most reliable eyewitness. But yet, you know, there were parts of this that were all, that was similar for all five people. Some people said he had, like I said, a plaid shirt on, possibly a beard. What I think I can say is that there was definitely a truck there that day. There was definitely a man there with the truck. And, and that, to me, is enough you know, that should have been looked into more. I don't know that it was. I mean, what's difficult, again, is that you've got, you know, a rest area, essentially. It could have just been someone coming through for part of the day, and he could be on his way. And you said this was a fairly popular site for the area. Mm -hmm. So you have people coming in and out all day. Right. Also, there were two suspects right away that could have been looked into for similar attacks and and Terry says that the, that they never were but for some reason they were mentioned in the police report yeah but not looked into Stephen Douglas Malik and Joseph Hamilton Segner again like the three name thing yeah and I wish my writing was better because I'm not quite sure that Joseph Hamilton's name is Segner, but I'm sure if we um, wanted to look those creeps up we could find out more about them but for whatever reason, they were never looked into. And maybe maybe they just figured out right away that there was no possibility. Maybe they were both in prison. I have no idea. The law enforcement maybe knew of these shady characters. It's a small community. They knew maybe something about these men. Can we just talk about how we know that at this time there was a lot going on in the state in terms of, I think we mentioned it in the first episode, that you know there were a lot of creeps. Yeah, really shocking if you if you sit and think about it, actually, what was going on in the 70s in Oregon. Uh, we had John Arthur Ackroyd terrorizing Highway 20, mm-hmm. right? For about 20 years there, he was able to roam around, roam around and, and uh, we know that he, around this time, killed Kay Turner, who was there on Christmas vacation with her family jogging. Mm-hmm. And there were some other cases going on in the area, correct, that um, Mary Kay Templeton, they found a body. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very scary things going on in Oregon around this area. Yeah, her name was Mary Jo Templeton. We'll get into that in a second. But, yeah, I mean, and who knows, Ted Bundy probably drove through exactly. as well. Like, it was just... I do believe that at all times, how many serial killers are kind of, you know, roaming around in the United States? I mean, at all times, there's like several, right? Or whatever the statistics are. I guess for me, you just think, I think about Oregon and where we grew up and my mind doesn't go there. It seems like it would have been an innocent time. But, you know, look how far we come. This is information sharing. This is why we're doing this today, you know. Yeah, this is what was actually really going on. The information sharing was limited. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had the newspapers and the news. And as we said, they did like a very uh, degree of reporting on this and, and also would like diffuse the even the wording and the reporting would be like one report said they were beat up. So, I mean, it, it's like the descriptions even varied and the location in the paper where the article was. And it it was just, like I said, the victim blaming part of it. So uh, she does go to the library and she finds articles from the library and was able to kind of piece apart more of like the newspaper articles. And she was really doing that more from like an investigative point of view uh, and trying to get, I guess, kind of information from those articles in terms of like 
what what were they doing? What were the police doing? What were some of the descriptions? So she's able to piece some things together, but not very much. Hmm. Must have been pretty disappointing. Uh, along the way and pretty early on, she um, she really finds allies in this investigation, really, in her hunt. I mean, the rest of the book, a large portion of the book, is about her figuring out who to interview, who to talk to, how to do that, and also, like, who are her friends. And I, I think that's one thing that she didn't plan on that she would come to Oregon and all of this would play out the way that it did. I think she probably, like we talked before, she probably had some expectation or idea of what she was going to do. She was going to write her book. I think it probably turned out very differently for her than she thought. Because she connected with the actual community. Right. And in a way, like trauma bonded, really. She discovers that mm. this this event on, you know, June 22nd, 1977, really had a ripple effect through this community. The, the nurses that helped her in the hospital, mm. you know, everything that she, pe- people that she wouldn't have suspected were still thinking about this night. They were still thinking about the event. Wow. And, and so right away she goes to try to contact the couple that actually were there that helped her. The The boy was obviously a man now. Um, his name is Bill. He was pretty resistant right away to talk to her, but she ends up connecting with the girl mm-hmm. that was in the truck that night, and her name is Boo. That's not her real name, but she calls her Boo in the book. You can find out what her real name is if you want to, but Um, Her and Boo actually turn out to have, like, a pretty um, consistent friendship throughout this book. She ends up being her ally. And and hearing Boo's event of the night, it's interesting because she got, she did get to talk with someone and share her story and hear and bond with someone else finally. That was there that night. Yes. That could tell her this is what, what she saw. I, saw yeah. I was there. I felt this is what I remember. So Boo actually gives more detail to the story as oh, well. Wow. And kind of gives another picture of it that is helpful, but also now Terry is finally able to release some of that and connect with someone who was actually there. And, of course, the only other person that she could do that would be, you know, the, the man that was the, holding the, the, axe. the axe. A reporter tells her to get a hold of this couple. The Counts's, uh, their name was Bob. Well, the couple's name is Bob and Dee Dee. Okay. And they are pretty infamous for uh, being involved with the justice system in the 70s and 80s and really pushing for reform. Mm-hmm. So they become, of course, her ally throughout all of this because at one point, and how they came into this is that their daughter had been murdered and it had put them on this track of like trying to figure out who had murdered their daughter and they, the description of who they were and, and what happened to them. And I can only imagine the pursuit that they did because I think I would do the same thing. I want to believe I would if the police didn't help and solve it. Mm-hmm. So there's some history about that, but that's also how they got on track to be really working for reform in the criminal justice system because at that time, the criminal justice system was really focused on the rights and the re- rehabilitation of the accused and it was really focused on anti-incarceration policies even though there was a rise of crime in the 70s and 80s it's interesting because as crime was increasing our laws were not you know adequate I guess adjusting so they were more geared towards helping the perp in the situation right or you know we've talked about this victim shaming that you know you're raped why were you out there drunk with him? You right. know, what so, were you wearing? You um, know. So what did she find out about our laws in this state, which is pretty shocking, right? Right. So what we said before, I think, was that the, you know, the, the fact that the statute of limitations had actually run out by 1980, which, of course, you know, here she goes back to her home and probably wasn't thinking anything probably she was thinking as a young girl like the police are going to take care of this 
I mean, I can't imagine that her parents even thought like, well, we have three years to solve this. Right. And actually in that NPR uh, interview that you and I listened to, she talks about how, you know, at some point she thought that the law enforcement was taking a part of it. You know, everyone thought someone else was actually looking into this crime and no one was. That's mm-hmm. a travesty. Yeah. You know, and three years. So this happened in 1977. Even if they did catch, you know, the, the axe-wielding maniac, there's nothing that could have been done, right? Right, and that that's kind of what is interesting about this. So when she finds that out, it's stunning, right? But then it's like, okay, so she's contacting the police. She's contacting the sheriff's department the redmond police department trying to get information and and they're like well we why you nothing can be done really at this point so that's a travesty within itself that attempted murder manslaughter anything you know it it didn't matter at that point like that you know until the 90s which was when the reform happened like you this was just the way the laws were and Hmm. There's a a piece of this that I believe in reformation, like I believe in rehabilitation. Uh, I believe that everybody should have the opportunity to to do that. I also think that there are some people that some people with certain um, mental health issues or personality types or, you know, that that there is likely no possibility that they can be rehabilitated. And at this point, they had a very interesting tiered system in our state with like one psychiatrist or psychologist that was able to like put the criminal through this evaluation and often they would just get let off. So it was a 16 tier like evaluation system matrix is what they called it. Okay. And it let criminals who would commit murder out very quickly out of prison at this point. Like, it's astounding. It's very different than the laws right now. Hmm. So at the time, you know, when she comes back into Oregon, I mean, this was, she came back in 1992. So all of this had been happening in the 70s and 80s. And again, I don't think she expected to find this. I don't think she knew. I love Oregon and I, and And yet, I also wonder what was going on in other states at the time, too. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing with this trip she was on was, you know, in hindsight, what a a beautiful idea, you know, for us to be able to get on our bike and travel. But are we looking at, like, what is going on in these communities that we're riding our bikes through? Right, right. And it sucks that we have to. But as women and as travelers, like, they literally put a tent down in a town, on the outskirts of a town, where there were, you know, the viewpoint of two women travelers Mm -hmm. traveling, by the way, without men. So that was the key. When I kind of did some reading in here, it wasn't that they were traveling and deciding to do this bike ride. It was the fact that they were without men. Hmm. And it looks a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. Because women weren't allowed to do this still in the 70s. I don't know. So I just got on a tangent about how it's our responsibility as women to, like, educate ourselves on the crime statistics of each area that we're going. But, my God, like, they literally just plopped down in this rural area of Oregon. It was beautiful, but it was rural. And the viewpoints of the people living nearby align with that yeah always like these were this was not a progressive town that they were near it is more now bend is progressive right right at the time it was uh, much more desolate yeah a lot of cowboys Mm -hmm. carrying axes (sighs) she becomes she has her allies and they move through this investigation process with her it's a it's just amazing what the links that she goes to try to get the pieces of who you know and try to figure out who did this to her and Shayna and at first uh there was a suspect that kind of came into her view and his name was Richard Wayne Godwin they called him Richard or Bud Godwin I think okay um this guy Kim how did she hear about him throughout through the community or he there was a uh confession a jail, okay. a prison confession, that, and then he confessed. So, Bud, or another 
criminal like pointed a finger at him. So that's how she finds out about Bud. Bud. And this guy is a real treat. Lots of really exciting like, you know, violence against Everyone young girls. Oh. So the reason why this is important was because he had been having like a relationship with his 14-year-old niece. And she was rumored to have possibly been at the park that night. So that's where this correlation came that maybe he had gone there to find her. Oh. His background is really disturbing. He he had, like, been arrested for molesting his five-year-old daughter. Mm. He had been uh, on probation for, hit, for molesting his five-year-old niece. And then uh, a five-year-old girl disappeared while playing near the Willamette River in 1976. He somehow either confesses, but he had kidnapped her, raped her, strangled her, and dumped her body. At some point, he also was found, like, with a skull. He had had a skull and had put, like, a candle on the skull. And there's, like, a whole... Yikes. Gross. I think he had kept her skull. People found it in his trailer... In Springfield, Oregon. Oh, great. I know. <laughs> um, so Terry gets wind of this Bud character. But just to remind our listeners, I mean, my sounds like Bud's issue is with children. And this attack, which I find kind of interesting. I mean, at the time, we know a lot of violence against women as far as raping was going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um this wasn't a sexual attack, like, who knows if it was going to be or what, but... So it's kind of interesting. She finds this guy, he has all this going on, kind of sexually molesting. Does she really go into the book, like, thinking it's him, or does she let that go, or... Well, I mean, he really didn't fit the description, Even though he had confessed or confessed to another jailmate, like, that it just didn't, they had no evidence. Um, you know, they do think that possibly he was trolling Klein Falls looking for his niece that night, but it never, like, it never up. lined up. And, and what's important about this is this guy really, like, is, shines like a spotlight on our corrections our faulty uh, system with with laws and in our correction facility and the matrix system in our prisons. And she starts to really lobby. She goes to his parole board hearings. Like, she becomes pretty active in this because she wants to keep him in prison. So when he's in prison at the time and... And so she really goes after him because I think this is the only lead she has. Mm -hmm. Because here's this perpetrator and he was known to be in the area and he was looking for his niece who was supposed to be at Klein Falls Park. So... That I can I can see why her sights were on him, but along the way, as she's kind of starting to interview other people, right, pretty early on, she finds out about someone that the whole town suspects essentially for okay. the crime, and and the rest of the book. Then she starts she lets go of Godwin, lets go of Bud. I think she still continues to keep an eye on the whole thing, but she really starts to kind of turn her sights on this other suspect. Okay. And what what's kind of disturbing about it is that he's a 17-year-old wow. boy from the town of Redmond. Hmm. And so the whole rest of the book is really... Are you all... No. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> disturbed. 17. Right. Every time you say 17, I'm like... No. Because, <laughs> you know, we've, so we've had disturbing. kids. I mean, it's like so triggering because we have kids that are close to this age. We have daughters. We have a son. It's like, this is so scary to think about, like, what if this... Yeah. It is really scary. We were talking about it before, just to go off a little bit. Putting yourself in Terry's perspective and even, you know, those people that helped her. But as a parent, mm-hmm. you know, your 19-year-old daughter is going to take a bike ride across country and then you get a call that actually she was attacked by an axe. So you need to come. Yeah. And I mean, I just ugh, couldn't imagine. So Terry through the community, has heard from different people, like several different people, that it could be this 17-year-old man. 
Right. And in the book, Terry purposely, I think we said in the first episode, she chose to change the names of certain people Mm -hmm. uh, for certain reasons. And I respect that. At the end of the book, she did, you know, outlines why she did that. Uh, she chose, you know, when she was writing this book in the early 90s to give this perpetrator a different name. Okay. So in the book, his name is Dirk. And in real life, his name is Richard. Okay. Which I think is also really funny. I don't know what's up with the, the Richards, but this, and he just has two names. Oh. So there's no, no middle name. I mean, we could try to hunt one down, yeah. see if he has one, because he probably does. But his name is Richard Dam. Uh, and he really ultimately becomes her prime suspect and for good reason, really. I mean, I, you and I for two days have been talking about if we believe he really did it and we keep going back and forth. Terry, I think in her mind, there's no doubt that this was the person that did it. Okay. And, and, and yet I, I think it was still stunning to her because my God, this was like a 17 year old boy at the time. Really a boy. Well, yeah, I'm sure in Terry's mind, a 17 year old boy is not what she pictured. You know, I don't know what she pictured like to go back. She couldn't see the face. Right. All she could see was this man above her with his arms raised above her with an ax and she looks at him and says, says something like, please don't do this. Yeah. And he lowers it and walks away. So she never sees his face. And in that moment, I think I, you would think you think he's bigger than life. Like, you know, not a 17 year old boy. She knew the whole time that he was definitely like fit and young. Because she describes his legs, right? right? Remember, she describes right. seeing his fit jeans and his appearance and thinking he's He's good looking yeah so that part of it ties together right and also I want to point out that that potentially at some point along the way someone said to her you know I wonder if the reason you couldn't see his face was because he had a cowboy hat on that might have blocked like the light from the truck so could that be, you know, I, I just want to throw that in there. So that would have fit the whole picture of this cowboy. I'm sure he would have had his hat on. I felt like that made sense to me. That yeah. That's probably why she couldn't see his face. So let me tell you about Richard. Okay. A.K.A. Dirk. Uh, I appreciate her uh, wanting to avoid giving him any type of notoriety at the time in the 90s, there was little limited internet mm-hmm. and information sharing. So she did not want any positive, like, support. I think, I'm not saying this right. Like, she didn't want any women to think he was appealing. Mm-hmm. And she felt that if she put his real name in here, that he would get positive notoriety. And she wanted to be really careful with that. She also wanted to protect people from the town that had helped her. So she was Mm. careful with with names that she used. So she had good intentions with this book. She also was really careful and had checked with Shana before writing the book. And Shana had given her her blessing, but did not want to participate, which I think I had shared a little bit about that before. Why Richard was a good suspect. Yeah. He was kind of known throughout the town as being violent. He was an alco- known to be an alcoholic. A lot of people knew that he knew him and knew his habits that he would fly off the handle. I mean, also he was really described as like a meticulous dresser. So if you knew him, you would know that about him. And let me guess, he liked to wear cowboy clothes. Yes. Like Terry finds out she infiltrates anyone that was close to him. I cannot believe the level that she went to to find out if this was the guy that did it. She And, and again, I don't know that this was really ever her plan, but she takes a lot of time, years really, to infiltrate into like his closest people. And they were receptive to her? Well, they were all women that he had abused. Oh. They were people that knew him. I mean, she she became very close to several women that he had, you know, in relationships with long-term, women that he had married, and they all tell the same tale. So she starts with his girlfriend at the time of the attack. Okay. Which 
is a very important key to this because they had been having problems and and so that week of the attack him and his girlfriend had been fighting now she says that the night of the attack they weren't fighting that he had literally dropped her off at home and everything was fine but other accounts say that they had been fighting the route from her house goes by klein falls so he would have been able to to hit klein falls on his way home and so his girlfriend becomes kind of a a key piece to all of this and the details of what happened through her are really important because really she gives the in my opinion the most important information to this that if police had followed up he possibly could have been even arrested he was under age so that played a key in it too at the time whether or not they would even have given him I mean again look at our reaction he was 17 mm-hmm. so I wonder if the pe- the police were even like oh he's a 17 he's a year kid. old kid he couldn't have done this right yeah what we know is that he was with his girlfriend he easily could have been at the park and then just gone on his way he often was known to to use a lot of substances at the same time so he would use alcohol and then you know another substance like Valium you know, and be on different substances at different times. And so it's possible that maybe he attacked the women in the park and doesn't remember parts of it. And going back a little to remind listeners, uh, we also know about him that he he tended to fly off the handle. Like, I'm not just saying, you know, someone could easily go, oh, you're just blaming the 17-year-old kid. But he did have a reputation mm-hmm. for having a violent temper as well. Yeah, so a lot had happened. They believe that his parents would often cover it up or help to cover it up. Um, He was an he was adopted, and so he had had issues. You know, I mean, Terry infiltrates like his parents' best friends. Wow, and and is gathering data, but his girlfriend at the time uh, really supplied a lot of information because the next day after the attack he goes and hunts her down at her job okay and he tries to kill her with an axe no not with an axe he tries i mean it's it's a violent attack and he tries to drown her and there are witnesses young kids at the time because this was like a, a farm and they were all there like picking beans or i don't remember what it was and he shows up and he's drunk He's got vodka in his truck. She throws the vodka out and he goes on a rampage. He gets arrested. Ah. So this is the day after Klein Falls. Okay. And so at the time, you know, here's Terry and Shayna at the hospital and Richard is being held for this other attack. If you think that potentially his girlfriend's story is off and that maybe they had actually been in a fight. He had gone to Klein Falls, attacked Terry and Shayna, and then the next day went after his girlfriend too. I mean, it kind of lines up. Yeah. What also flows is that his girlfriend says that she goes to Klein Falls and looks at the tire tracks and they match his tires. Wow. Because she knew tires, which is really also, by the way, pretty fucking cool. And uh, aligns with, like, you know, this rural living in the country. Like, she knew tire treads, and she knew Richard's tires. And she still believes that that the tire tracks were his. And remember, this was the one clue that the police had. Hmm. And they... Uh, They also, you know, the truck had hit into uh, the picnic table and potentially there could have been a paint matchup as well (gasps) if someone had actually matched the truck or gone after. Wow. I know. So she says that she went to the police and she told them, hey, this was potentially my boyfriend. I know his tires. Also, his toolbox is missing. And he always has this toolbox in here that has a hatchet in it. Okay. So she's got like this vital information. Her and her parent go to the police and share it. And there is no fucking record of it. No record that the police talked or even his name wasn't in this scrappy report that Terry got a hold of. Well, there's a little bit of information like going, you know, we're going to go talk to this 17 year old. 
But nothing, nothing. about what was... Oh, no. wow. And there's a, you know, the police are interviewed saying, we th- we're going to go check out this 17-year-old boy, but we don't think it's him. So already they were biased, right? For whatever reason. Right. Couldn't be the 17-year-old. So nowhere in the record is there any um, anything about his girlfriend going to the police. And so Terry interviews her later, you know, 15 years later, and she's like, no. She interviews the girlfriend, ex-girlfriend's parent. I mean, she is gathering, like, all this information. Never finds any record of the girlfriend going to the police. Hmm. Not that she didn't do it, but just, I believe it's it wasn't not out there. Yeah. For some reason, right? Um, and I want to say that, you know, this the axe... And the hatchet really are, you know, it's really a hatchet. It's really, I don't know. I would call it a hatchet and less of an axe. There's a theme throughout the book. I feel like that the hatchet is a person. It's, it's, it's almost got its own life in the book because she's on this discovery of like, where did the hatchet go? Whose hatchet? Did, did Richard have a hatchet? And what, you know, at one point she just starts collecting Terry does collecting axes and hatchets and she has like a trunk full of them. Wow. If you were writing like a script, the hatchet would be its own part in this story because it's a huge part. Yeah. It was an extension of the killer or, you know, potential. I mean, and you said it, he probably thought he had killed them. He definitely probably thought he had killed Shayna. Right. I mean, he hit her in the head Seven times. Seven times. Mm-hmm. And she was on the ground, you know. You drive your car up over someone, and, and who knows, maybe he, whoever it was, thought someone was in the tent. Mm-hmm. Both accounts of this are men who, uh, Bud and Richard, were would have been going to that park looking for someone. Whether it be the 14-year-old niece, they were both on a hunt to, what, violently attack assault, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But whoever it was really wanted to hurt and maybe thought he had killed both of them. Or maybe he was intoxicated and he accidentally had this accident. He knew, oh shoot. Now he drove. I might as well. Okay. So it was definitely where they see the tire tracks. They can tell it was a deliberate. There was an acceleration. Okay. Okay. Scratch that then, because I thought for a second, you know, maybe he was just had an accident and then realized, oh, I'm oh, going to just I finish him off, you know. And Let me grab my axe slash hatchet that's in my truck, because we live in a rural area that's like a logging state, and everybody has hatchets, apparently. Everybody has a tool. Uh... Should I get a hatchet? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> and put it in my... It was a common known tool used... In the area at the time, right? Because this is rural Oregon. Uh, so, but that's interesting. They, they did see acceleration in those tire tracks. So it was a deliberate yeah. attack. Well, and he pulls his truck off and then comes and back. And comes back. Okay. So, uh, yeah, at the point, you know, everybody has a tool box in their truck apparently people have several hatchets or at least one hatchet like Richard was supposedly had like three and so this hatchet becomes kind of a focal point also for Terry like um, supposedly Richard had like his initials carved in it supposedly people saw him the next day trying to get the blood out of the initials I know this this hatchet became almost mythical there was a story that 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 same night someone saw him throw the hatchet in the water on in the lake. I mean, so poor Terry is like chasing down these stories, chasing down the people telling the stories, going to prison, going to... I mean, she is in the prisons interviewing people. She is talking to everybody's everyone and their animals. Like she is on this hunt to try to track down what might have happened. But what I can say is that his girlfriend at the time really probably had the best Mm -hmm. and most relevant information that was, it looks like it was never really looked at for whatever reason. Also, this was a lot for a small town Mm -hmm. and it was handled by the Redmond police department 
the Deschutes County Sheriff's Department, and then eventually the Oregon State Police Department. So it was being handled by three different agencies, and I think that created a lot of confusion mm-hmm. and and probably tension, and who knows if they were open to information sharing or if they were holding back. Mm-hmm. So if here he is, this guy from a small town, and you've got all of the politics of that small town, is the Redmond Police Department going to really share with the Oregon State Police? Sure. Uh, are they going to give up? one of their community members who Mm -hmm. is being protected by parents in town. So this kid had been doing things. This wasn't his first time. So let's just say, for instance, the only thing he really did was attack his girlfriend the next day and try to kill her. That alone, he got released. He got let go. Mm. So this guy ends up, from this point on, even from before, he had already had a reputation as being like violent, alcoholic, all these things. Everyone in high school already knew him to be this way. And he just goes on to continue doing this. But he is blamed for the Klein Falls attack. Okay. People are pointing the finger at him from from that minute on anyway. And he professes his innocence. The whole this. time. The whole time. He never says he did it. He never uh, confesses ever, even to this day. But everyone points the finger at him. I mean, there were uh, other gangs in town, you know, and he was also in, affiliated with a lot of, like, shady people selling drugs Mm. as he goes into his adulthood and his reputation for being the attacker stays with him everybody knows and suspects and whether or not it's true it doesn't really matter because he got he might as well have done it so even if he didn't he still was always accused of being like people really believe that he did this. right people in the town Wow. And I'm not saying he didn't. I'm not saying he did. I mean, Terry really believes that she had gathered enough information to believe that he made the most sense. And what happens is within the 15 years after the attack, everything he's done proves that he is a violent individual against women. Like he gets his sight set on a woman. He infiltrates her life. And then he terrorizes her. And so Terry interviews and becomes friends and friendly with these women that he has left in the dust. He's abused them. He's um, assaulted them. And he has, you know, just left a trail of violence. And of victims. And of victims. Even if he didn't do it, he's a man, a violent man that has not been punished yeah. That's what she finds out. They think that his parents always had a lot to do with covering things up, that potentially there was just some sort of tainting in the investigation, possibly carelessness. And like I said, the fact that this was being shared between three different agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, there was even some talk about like a payoff in terms of like letting a local boy go even though he was known for being violent. She, like I said, starts to, to follow and befriend all these women and people that have been in, in Richard's life, people that have worked with him, and just find out about him. And, and of course, there's no way that he doesn't know. Yeah, I was going to ask you, does she at any point confront Richard? She never confronts him, but she gets close. Someone agrees to take him, this is a great part of the book, to a a restaurant and have lunch with him and agrees to, like, set it up so that Terry can go there and actually put eyes on him and sit across from him. So she, you know, she does her best to get close, but she never confronts him because it it wouldn't have done any good. Uh, They do end up giving him two separate lie detector tests. So the, the counsels help her to get the case reopened. Okay. And the Oregon State Police Department, and they all, I mean, at different points in time, she meets with, you know, all these men, mm-hmm. by the way, they're all male detectives, and gets them to reopen the case with the help of her friends and, and really look at the case again. And not because they can actually arrest him, 
but because they want to, you know, create the idea that, that their community is safe and that they're at least like, that this is an important thing to... Hmm. I mean, they were doing what we're doing, their information sharing. It sounds like they wanted to let as many people know what she found out about this kid, like mm-hmm. this, this jerk, you know, and then how even more intense to find out that he just did this to her, right? We don't know if it's him, but in her mind it is. And then just goes on and lives his life with victim after victim. You know, I'm sure in her head, everyone needs to know about this guy, right? Mm -hmm. Right, because he continued to do things. I mean, he never assaulted anyone with a, a hatchet again that we know of, but there was definitely like broken bones and abuse Mm. and he had had six prior arrests for domestic violence and four for drug and alcohol issues the system was definitely broken overloaded and and people like him would just never see jail time or less jail time and and that's what she found out too was just like here we're sorry but this is what's happening in Oregon right now you know like i said they do polygraph him she even records her voice and the next time they are going to polygraph him she they agree to play her voice and they're hoping that he'll confess i mean cuz that at this point is the only thing that would solve this as if he actually confessed but he never does and they you know they do try to get him on parole violations and the police are working with her uh and the the person that actually gives the polygraph to him really thinks that he's going to be able to get him to confess confess on the third time but they never get to pull him in also uh the forensic psychologist called a profile who would have been the person that committed the crime, and they said that he fit the profile as he's narcissistic, a sadist, um, came from a permissive, overindulgent family system, and they knew something, and they probably covered it up. He basically fits the profile of a psychopath. Yeah, I mean, again, his exes describe his meticulous dressing um, and the way that he would get ready in the mornings. He's good looking. Charismatic. Thank you. Like a knight in shining armor. His hygiene was first. His mom would like iron his stuff for him. Wow. So you've got what Terry describes that she saw, right? That's why she's always felt that it was him, right? Like there was a way that you would wear your Wranglers and you would tuck them in or not tuck them into your she, boots. I think she said a well-dressed cowboy yeah. when she described him. And so he fit, he fit the image really. And then his behavior fit Mm-hmm. the profile as well. The last part of the book is, is really, you know, her finding all these pieces, they're all coming together. And then eventually he does get arrested finally. And the police call her and let her know. And he's arrested for Domestic unlawful violence. use <laughs> of a deadly weapon and, and guilty of coercion. So what he actually gets arrested for, I was saying this was like Al Capone, like they arrested him for tax evasion when really he had done like all these other things. So a stupid like event happens. He's hunting with some guy he can't drive his truck anymore this is uh richard and so this kid and him go up and go hunting together and the kid's driving his truck for him and they're coming back the kid is going to take richard back home so he's going to drive on to his property and get his brother this kid is who was like 18 and richard wakes up because he's napping because he's drunk (laughs) and on shocker And he realizes that he's driving onto some property and Richard's like, don't, I don't want to drive here because I know the owners and I don't get along with them. And the kid's like, I've got to go pick up my brother so I can get another car and I can drop you off. And then, and Richard pulls out a gun, starts shooting it out of the truck, pokes it in the guy's like stomach and is like, don't take me here. And it starts this whole, like, train of events, and he ends up getting arrested for it. Finally, finally, for that. that. It's not the domestic (laughs) violence against women. And by the way, that whole cycle of, like, you know, some of the women wouldn't 
follow through either. I mean, domestic violence and being in these cycles of abuse with men, especially someone like him. Yeah, all the details in the book are crazy. But yes, this is what he gets arrested for and convicted of and sent to prison for five years. Finally. So Terry goes to court. She's a part of this process. They have their people there. Like they sit there. Uh, Boo goes with her. She's observing in the court of what's going on. Yeah, and I think there was another ex that went that day, too, when he was, like, convicted. And Terry, I told you this, that she takes, like, red lipstick and runs it down the scar on her arm. That's And intense. walks into the courtroom. And she knows that he knows who she is. I mean, the whole time it's like she sees his ex sitting next to her. I mean, she had literally, I cannot believe that this hasn't been made into a TV show no. or a movie. And I know that the book was like, and put it together in a way that was more probably dramatic, but literally, you can't make this shit up. Like, she gave up a part of her life to come back here and find out what happened to her and how, like, how fucking shocking to find out that it was likely just a 17-year-old kid. It's, first off, not very glamorous, right? Like, I wanted to believe or want to believe that it's, like, some crazy serial killer that was driving through the desolate highway in his Cadillac or I don't know like you in the movies you know you think it's almost more appealing for it to be someone that was a stranger yeah but I don't not a known 17 year old creep in the community high on drugs you know drunk yeah with no rules no insight no empathy (sighs) And it likely was someone that knew the area. That's the other part of it is the odds that it's going to be just some random person driving by. I mean, right. this was somebody that knew knew the area, could get away. Like, no other, nothing else was found at the scene that we know of. And The key for me is he liked dressing up like a meticulous cowboy. And yeah. that's what she witnessed. The good thing is that Terry eventually um, was able to help change some of the laws here in the 90s. And they changed the Oregon Senate Bill 614. And that made there be no statute of limitations on attempted murder, aggravated attempted murder, or manslaughter. But it wasn't retroactive. So anything Uh, that had happened before it doesn't count. But at least from that point on... It's going to take, yeah, the case won't be closed after three years. Yeah. And to some extent, I kind of understood why the law was there. And I still kind of believe this, that our memories are really faulty. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, you're using eyewitness accounts to convict someone and you go in 15 years later and someone's like, yeah, this is what I saw mm-hmm. and a person is like convicted from that. I, I can't imagine that happening. And I think the reasons why there was a statute of limitation made, makes sense to me to some extent, but now we have DNA. Now we have all these right. new things that can contribute to solving a crime. Three years does not seem like a long time to me though. Like, and how did they come up with that? Yeah. I think what, what this story is about, you know, was really, Terry didn't think this is what would happen. I don't, I think, I don't know what she thought. I think she was just going to write a book. I don't think she thought she would come into town and discover and heal herself and make, you know, these close bonds with this, these allies and connect trauma bond with the community and discover the laws were inadequate and were really only helpful to the criminal, which was typically a man. Yeah. And really trauma um, perpetuating for the woman. Because if you think about, you know, having this type of thing happen and then there's no punishment, no protection for the woman. And we found that with, you know, Ghost of Highway 20. This is a a big story. This is a big topic. It's why we're covering it. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I was drawn to the crime itself because it was like creepy yeah I think initially um well I'm I didn't expect taking the inspirational side away from this story right when we started talking about it we um want to give the book justice you started reading the book it's a beautifully written book Mm -hmm. um really an inspirational side of this is how Terry came back 
and healed from this. Like, these are two women this happened to. They were so young. They could have easily let this ruin their lives. But Terry grew into a, an accomplished writer. Mm -hmm. Shanna is a physician. Like, she got her medical degree and became a doctor. So that is very inspirational. Yeah, and Terry says, you know, that really what she walked away with is that there's two parts of this. She believes that the community felt that the police were going to handle it. Yeah. And the police felt that the community were going to come forward and give tips. And so neither one of those things happened. And she got that information as she talked with people who either, and even people in her own life from her, you know, the East Coast would say, we thought you were dead. Like she literally went back oh, to, wow. uh, so even just how that worked, the information that was out there and the police were waiting for tips, which they often do. They solve crimes, you know, sure. that way. And the community thought the police were handling it. And so they didn't come forward. Or, you know, you have a sinking suspicion about someone, but really to come out and say, I think he's the one, you know, that did this, that's yeah, hard for people, I would think. Yeah, I want to end today with just, uh, I'm going to read a little bit from Terry's book. Okay. And I thought it would be a perfect way to end this, because what we really want to focus on, I think, is not to glamorize, like, the, the violence that happened to them and not to, like, re-traumatize our listeners or we want to honor... What happened that night on June 22nd, 1977, and that I want to honor those young girls that yeah. rode into the camp that night and their hope for their future and their dreams of riding across country, which were, you know, that ended literally that night within like 15 minutes. I mean, the whole attack happened and it, it was really a matter of a very short, just a few minutes, and their life was totally turned upside down. And they left Oregon and had views of Oregon, by the way, that um, Terry's dad was recorded saying that his daughter would be safer in New York City. And so I want us to think about what what is happening in our communities. What happened in the 70s and 80s is still reflective. It still counts. It still matters because it continues to happen. It does. Mm -hmm. Can our daughters ride their bikes together? Can our daughters ride their bikes alone and camp? Can, you know, can we even do that? And, and we can, but are we safe? Mm -hmm. And and what would happen if there was an attack? Would we would justice happen? I mean, there's so many wow. parts to this. Yeah. So we want to honor Terry and and Shayna and those bright young girls that you know rode their bikes that day. But what this is about is violence against women. We want to kind of spotlight that. I think overall, that's what I got from this was that because it was two women who were somewhere that they supposedly we're not supposed to be I think that's why the ball got dropped on this a little bit I mean at the time you know there were the state was handling two other high profile murder cases yeah against they had women. no idea right women that were I mean jogging by themselves again like it, it's <sighs> So from, uh, I'm going to read from Terry's book, but also uh, we're going to just encourage you to, if you've experienced domestic violence, if you're in a relationship right now, or you know someone that is, reach out. We're going to add some information at the end of this. We may not need that support, but you you might need to share it with someone at some sure. point. And the best thing that we can do to support these causes that support women is to find you know, find a way to, to donate money if you can. Mm -hmm. uh, find a cause that speaks to you. And we really need to be supporting other women mm -hmm. right now. We need to not shame them. We need to support them. We need to build up women and girls so that we can go into our communities and be safe. And even if it's just the belief that we're not safe, sometimes that holds us back. Yeah. For sure. So then it doesn't even matter if our communities are safe. I mean, we've been talking about this for months. Yes. That women are disappearing in Oregon. Yep. 
if you can, find a way to support a local organization. organization. Mm -hmm. Volunteer if you can. Um, gather statistics about your town. Talk to your police. Find out what's happening in your community and, and how to advocate for the safety of women. And, yes. and if you can, donate money. Yeah. There is an... There is an exhaustible inventory of evil against women in the world, and there is, too, another kind of evil, that of callous indifference and passive complicity, an evil kind of innocence. These stories I found myself in the midst of seemed at first far from my own life experience. My behind-the-scenes look at domestic violence of the darkest hue, finding my own life interwoven with the lives of these battered women had laid bare an unsettling discovery. Categories of male violence against women and children are not distinct. Beating a wife or girlfriend is not distinct from raping or murdering strangers. It's not distinct from molesting a niece or nephew. Mm -hmm. A guy who slaps his wife around is along the same continuum as a rape and incest and murderer, which are merely situated farther along the spectrum. Street harassment is on the same continuum. Pioneering feminists in the early 70s had a name for such hectoring as wolf whistles and animal noises. They called them little rapes. Yikes. My body knew this all along. The primal fear I felt in my early 20s when I heard hissing on the street like a rattlesnake in grass. I found myself in the middle of this degree of male violence quite by accident. I had grown up in the atmosphere of decency Violence of any sort was never a feature of my childhood. I never lived a lifestyle where I might have expected to find myself among the brutal goings-ons. On, going if I, of all people, had found myself linked to these battered women through one violent man, a stranger to me, how prevalent this male violence against women must be, and what a long shadow if it surely cast on the lives of all women. From this perspective, it wasn't surprising that my axe murderer hadn't turned out to be a ghoulish serial killer. From this perspective, it made sense that my axe murderer might have been a local schoolboy who beat his girlfriend. <sighs> wow. Again, uh, you should find the book Strange Piece of Paradise, written by Terry Gents. I commend her. Like, it's a beautifully written book. It's, worth, uh, it's a good read. Okay, Kim. I love you, Christine. And until next time. If you or someone you know is a victim or survivor of domestic violence, you can get help now for anonymous confidential help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799 7233.